Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our Insight series, where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share. Hello, welcome to Sibyline Podcast series. I'm Guo Yu, lead APAC analyst. In this latest episode, I'm joined by fellow Asia-Pacific analysts uh, Hans Horan and Ricardo Cusiani. Together, we'll discuss the seemingly rising tensions in around the Korean Peninsula. Now, now as we've probably seen in recent media reports, Tehran has um, sought to bolster its deterrence by adjusting its nuclear uh, policy as well as launching a fresh number of um, uh, ballistic missiles. Among others, um, South Korea, Japan, and the US, for their part, have also in- responded by strengthening their trilateral military cooperation in an effort to deter North Korea from developing nuclear weapons. So if I go to you first, Hans, can you provide us a brief overview of what has been tested and what has their impact been on the, um, on the Asia-Pacific region? Thank you, Hugo. So we saw a, a quite high number of opposition activity in the beginning of the year, so from about January to about May. And then we saw that small pause in the summer. And as you said, we saw this kind of more second phase uh, activity since September onwards. Um, in terms of what we've seen so far, we've seen a much more uh, larger continuation of what we saw prior to the, the break in the summer. So we're seeing a continuation of the SRBMs, so short-range ballistic missiles. We've seen a number of IRBMs, uh, inter- intermediate-range ballistic missiles. We've seen some SLBMs, some submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And to a certain extent, we've seen some other kind of activity as well. Um, we haven't necessarily seen as provocative as a test as, as, say, an ICBM, which we saw at the beginning of the year. But that is something that we are expecting kind of in this in this second half, in the second phase, as you, as you said. In terms of how it's differed from the first phase, as I said, it really hasn't. It's been very much a continuation of what we saw beforehand. And we can kind of get into later on about why we saw the strategic pause and, and what that means to a certain extent. But for, for the most part, it has been largely the same as we saw during the first part of the year. Thanks, Hans. Um, so that's very uh, interesting insight. And, and uh, Ricardo, if I could go to you now, um, for you to uh, have a quick look on the uh, regional implications um, for the, um, you know, obviously wider uh, Asia-Pacific region. We already uh, suggested that, that there's a definitely an increase of tensions on the uh, Korean Peninsula. What has the latest activities by North Korea uh, impacted uh, any sort of business or supply chain operations? Thanks, Igor. The more important threat to and, and risk to uh, region businesses are those to the um, aviation sector and the maritime uh, transport and, and, and cargo sectors. The risk of missiles flying in the air and possibly hitting um, aircraft or vessels in water uh, remains, although it is very unlikely that North Korea would be uh, particularly targeting and purposefully targeting such targets. Although there could be there could be delays in, in in supply chain production due to the uh, the risks posed by such missiles, as well as the closure of airspace and um, maritime space. In fact, uh, in late September, North Korea launched a ballistic missiles over Japan, which prompted authorities to, um, to to launch sirens and to order everybody to stay indoors. So that that is the the most risk that the uh, the current launches pose to businesses. However, the um, the impact 
will remain to be minimal. So there will only be at most minor uh, to limited uh, disruptions. And again, the, the risk that such missiles, the such missile test will specifically target um, aircraft or vessels at sea remains quite low. Right. So I guess it's the, um, there's moderate sort of uptake of, uh, of uh, obviously risk. This is more sort of an indirect kind of an impact on uh, on civil aviation and um, and international shipping, where uh, whereby aircraft and ships may take cautionary measures by avoiding sort of uh, um, you know uh, areas that those rockets may may land. Yes, that, that that's correct. Hans, uh, you suggested that, um, and we also alluded, um, you know, uh, before that there was definitely a break. Of uh, missile activities by Pyongyang, you know, we see an intense period of um, uh, you know firing of missiles early this year, but then had a pause, and then activity picked uh, picked up again uh, in recent weeks. Why why that was the case, and and why um, has Pyongyang restarted now? So yeah, as I alluded to, there was a strategic kind of pause in the summer, and I think there's a number of reasons why we can why why we can assume that there was this pause. There is no concrete evidence, of course, uh, but this does seem like the most likely explanation for it is that this one seems quite self-explanatory. But ballistic missile tests and and missile tests in general are quite expensive. So recent estimates from say the South Korean intelligence agencies and more Western intelligence agencies as a whole have estimated that somewhere between 2% to 3% of their GDP has been spent so far on their ballistic activity. So a test that came, uh, a report that came out mid-year, so about June, estimated about 2%. Since then, it has only increased. So we're estimating somewhere in the, in the 3 4% at this point. So one, again, being the larger they just ran out of money, or it became financially untangible for them to continue engaging in this provocative activity, to engage, continue engaging in uh, missile and blister activity. And the second kind of bigger factor, and we'll get into some of these mitigating factors as well along with this, but uh, has been the severe flooding on the Korean Peninsula over the summer months. So we saw quite, heav- quite heavy flooding uh, in South Korea summer, where we saw a lot of flooding, particularly very severe flooding in Gangnam, in, in the quite uh, high-rise district of, of Seoul. We, have, we saw equally bad flooding in North Korea, if not worse, uh, largely because North Korea doesn't have the same level of infrastructure to get rid of a lot of this water that South Korea does. So we saw from satellite imagery um, that we that a lot of the flooding took place in places that were more rural, where a lot of these bases, either uh, air bases or underground facilities like the Kyungari uh, nuclear testing facility, where all of these tests are taking place, uh, which basically means that we saw water getting into these facilities, which is compromising the area in which they could conduct these tests, which we can assume that if water got in, they had to first remove the water, make sure that all the back up in the, in the facilities, the infrastructure that they used to conduct these tests were still operating. And if they weren't operating, they had to replace it. And then from there, make sure everything was up to par and up to standard before they can re-engage in activity. And considering how long the flooding period was in, in, in the Korean Peninsula or on the Korean Peninsula, uh, we can assume that they had to wait until everything was 100% clear before they start engaging in activity, before they start wasting money on tests that end in failures because of the, of, of factors outside of their control, or in this case, would be within their control, waiting for the weather to kind of uh, improve. Um, but I, I think the bigger issue, along with the flooding, has been a bit of the cost. So as I said, it, it has been somewhere between 2 and 4% of their GDP as of so far in the year, uh, which, again, doesn't say much because their GDP has gone down significantly over the last, uh, over the last year, two years because of the COVID pandemic. So 
because of their closure, their border closures with China, their biggest trading partner, and some of the sanctions and, and things of that nature that have been levied against them by international organizations like the UN uh, and the US and things of that nature. But at the same time, we have seen something that would indicate that they've been trying to mitigate these issues. So um, for instance, we saw that cyber attacks, particularly uh, financially motivated cyber attacks, over the last year have increased quite quite significantly to to, where, to the point where the UN Security Council came out with a report not too long ago basically saying that estimates uh, of how much money North Korea has stolen in cryptocurrency assets over the last year ranges between 500, and, 500 million and a uh, billion dollars uh, in cryptocurrency assets. So in that sense, we've seen them try to mitigate these factors. And it is, in my mind, no surprise that we see reports of them reaching this total and then being able to kind of move into that new transition period, that new, that secondary phase, as we called it, of blissful activity. So it very much is linked to the two, uh, being able to fund it and being able to ensure that they're doing the tests in a way that will not uh, backfire on them and be having them wasting money because of how limited their resources are at the particular moment. So I think there are probably other small mitigating factors as well that took place. We can talk about the, the timing of the incident, uh, the timing of the business of activity, the timing of a potential nuclear test, and we can get into that in a little bit as well. But I think the two biggest factors, if you want to talk about two kind of broad strokes, if you will, would be the cost of the testing themselves and the, the severe flooding that happened on the Korean Peninsula over the summer period. Yeah, thanks for the um, very um, in-depth summary and, and highlighting the two, two major causes. Now, let's talk about the timing. Um, and it was the latest launch signal uh, about uh, Pyongyang's intentions. And we obviously, aside from uh, missile activities, we also read a report of North Korea preparing for, uh, 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 some say, according to South Korean intelligence agency, imminent nuclear tests. Uh, can we say a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, as you said, South Korean intelligence, the NIS, the National Intelligence Service of South Korea, have given us a kind of window, if you will, for when they expect a most, it's most likely for a North Korean nuclear test to take place. So they gave that window of October, I believe it was October 16th to the 7th of November, which is currently the window we're sitting in right now. It should be noted that the South, the South Korean intelligence agency, NIS, didn't give an indication of why they believe this is the best time frame. This is pure, they, they haven't given us any concrete uh, intelligence or evidence that this is going to be the window. Um, but it is, for them, the most likely for a number of reasons. One of them is that within that window, there is two very important events. The uh, China Party Congress to take, is, is currently taking place and will end on Sunday at the time of the recording. And uh, the U.S. midterm election will be hit towards the end of that window, so which will be starting around the 5th of November. Um, so in that sense, that's the two big events, I think, that they're trying to plan this particular uh, event for. So I think uh, for the earlier window, one of the things they were particularly trying to highlight is the fact that we saw a pause of ballistic activity during the uh, Beijing Winter Olympic Games, and we saw a resumption of them afterwards. And then, of course, that, I think that's, the win that's one of the things that, that the NIS is trying to bank on, particularly on this particular case, where we saw an increase of ballistic activity just before the Beijing Winter Olympic Games, and we saw a pause during it, and then we saw a a return to the activity afterwards, which uh, culminated in, of course, in an ICBM test. But I think that's the analogy they're trying to go for in this particular case, where we've seen that North Korea is quite conscious of the fact that it doesn't want to upset its biggest partner, being China, uh, both politically and economically. So we are we have seen kind of a rush to get as many tests out as possible before a big Chinese event, in this case, the Party Congress. We've seen a bit of a pause during the actual event itself now, and now we're seeing, we might, see, and the expectation is that we'll see a return to this 
provocative activity after the uh, the actual party congress itself, which again ends on Sunday, which then, uh, to all estimations, according to the intelligence, will co- culminate in then a nuclear test, much like the, the previous phase culminated in the ICBM test. So as we said, it's likely going to happen in the early stage of that window, but in the later stage, close to the midterm election, the US midterm election, of course, uh, which can be for a number of reasons, one of them being that that is a largely in line with some of the some of the statements that North Korea leader uh, Kim Jong-un has been saying over the last couple of weeks slash month in terms of using tactical nuclear weapons as a deterrent for uh, what they consider sovereign invading activity from the trilateral alliance of Japan, South Korea, and the U.S., um, particularly their military drills that have been going in and around the Korean border, uh, the, the inter-Korean border. So in that sense, um, it very much seems like it's going to be one of those statements that, that Kim Jong-un does and what she uses its ballistic missile test for normally, which is to try and push against uh, regional powers to show that it is largely a, a threat to be taken seriously, both uh, nuclearly and militarily more generally. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's what the, the, bigger, uh, the bigger implications are for the timing of this. But Ricardo, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? I very much agree with you that the the presumptions of uh, missile launches and possibly a nuclear test will be more likely towards the end of October after the ending of China's 20th-party Congress and closer to the date of the U.S. midterm elections. I mean, North Korea definitely wants to send a series of signal messages to the rest of the world, in particular South Korea, uh, the U.S., and, and, and Japan. And doing so during China's 20th-party Congress will be detrimental. Uh, to, to their alliance with China and so to their security, for it would possibly alienate them even more with their only ally. It will make more sense for them under all circumstances, really, to, to do so closer to the U.S. midterm election, for it would send a signal to, to its competitor and enemy that you know, the nuclear threat is there to stay. And in fact, I think that also explains part of the rationale behind the, the, um, the resumption of their missile launches, during uh, the last few weeks, in fact, uh, many of them were, in my view, a tit-for-tat response to, for example, the resumption of U.S.-South Korea and trilateral U.S.-South Korean-Japan military exercises, some of which um, had been paused since 2017. It makes sense that North Korea is uh, sending signals to South Korea and, and the U.S. mostly that they're the military technological developments, nuclear missile technology development is there to stay. And in fact, uh, there will not be the signals that they will not be deterred from the, um, the resumption of these military exercises. Right. And that's very interesting. And, and Ricardo, you said, um, and also Hans, you guys said a lot about uh, North Korea, you know, doing such um, military provocation, whether it be uh, launching missiles or preparing for nuclear tests to make a statement, you know, and also as a response to what they perceive, you know, adversary activities by uh, U.S., uh, uh, Japan, and South Korea. So, how has the region been reacted lately um, by North Korea's provocations and rising tensions? And um, how would they react? Particularly, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, U.S. and its allies, say, if North Korea conducts uh, a nuclear attack. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting question. And I think one thing that I think is particularly important to highlight is that when we're talking about nuclear tests, um, there is a possibility that North Korea will conduct several nuclear tests over the span of a couple hours to a couple of days, uh, according to 
best estimates and on what the priorities are for the nuclear for for uh, Kim Jong Un's regime. So I think importantly, uh, when we're looking at nuclear tests, they're probably going to be trying different warheads uh, to try and see if they've achieved miniaturization for these tests uh, for these particular technologies. So of course. Uh, oh, a nuclear warhead for uh, an SRBM and an ICBM, of course, uh, are slightly different, so they have to test those equally. So we'll probably see multiple tests just for that clarification. But in terms of what that what the allies, how the allies respond is that, and I think it's important to understand what that means for multiple tests uh, as well as a singular test. Uh, in terms of a singular test, we will probably see, again, sanctions. We'll see in terms of activities of something in the range of, of an equal response militarily from, from a military jail perspective from either South Korea and the U.S. or South Korea, the U.S. and Japan. There's also a possibility of those being split into two separate ones, uh, which would then take the place of retaliatory missile activities. And then we probably see air sorties being flown in an area around uh, the border region. We'll probably see um, something in the range of what we saw during one of the last tests of a Chinmu-12 missile launch from South Korea, and we'll get into that implications later in a little bit. Um, but the increasing trilateral military deals between Japan, as you said, Japan, the US, South Korea, will probably be the most likely response to any missile activities from a single perspective. From a multiple nuclear test perspective, um, we're likely to see that, but then uh, at, at a higher scale, we're likely to see instead of um, just one test and response, we're likely to see multiple tests and response uh, to this, to this provocative activity. And then from there, we're likely to see that escalate uh, even further in terms of, uh, you know, retaliatory attacks from North Korea and then reverse more retaliatory military drills from them. But of course, the risk of armed conflict from these drills are, are quite low uh, as of right now, because that's not the point of the drills themselves. The drills, of course, are to express uh, deterrence, uh, not necessarily to engage in conflict itself. Um, but in terms of, uh, particular kind of uh, actual activity. Uh, I, I do think the the likelihood of increasing military drills, retaliatory military drills, particularly from the, the trilateral partners, the, the US allied partners, if you will, uh, is, is the, the highest likelihood uh, result on top of sanctions, uh, which of course, for, for interesting caveat to add on there, one of the reasons why I do believe that multiple tests is more likely scenario instead of one singular nuclear test is that North Korea will, try, will likely try to minimize the impact of sanctions or minimize the amount of sanctions levied against them for their provocative activities. So if you lump many nuclear tests of different types of nuclear warheads um, in a short range of time, so again, talking a couple hours to maybe a day, a couple days, um, it limits the ability of the US powers to enact numerous different sanctions on them if they were to spread this out over, say, weeks. So the, the level of sanctions, the number of sanctions that are likely to be levied against them if it's over a, a period of weeks is much higher than if they try to cram as many as they can into a couple hours or a couple of days. So uh, it largely seems, that, as, as we said, that they're using this to try and present themselves as a nuclear deterrent and trying to present themselves as this uh, legitimate military threat uh, while minimizing the risk of, e of economic kind of sanctions and economic impact of their tests themselves. Sometimes, and that's a very interesting ass uh, assessment. And, and taking on board uh, all what we discussed uh, today, and Ricardo, if I can go, uh, go to you briefly to wrap it up. Um, so uh, is that, does that suggest that we are moving further away or the prospect of a resumption of um, you know, multilateral negotiations, uh, political negotiation on the North Korea nuclear issue um, uh, uh, will, will be, you know, uh, basically further undermined or, or become uh, further remote, um, seeing um, the latest uh, activities by Pyongyang and the likely nuclear tests. 
um, and the expected international sanctions. I think you're right. Yeah, I think the continuation of missile launches by North Korea and, and a possible nuclear test would definitely deteriorate and undermine uh, diplomatic endeavors and also the chances of bringing bilateral but also multilateral um, you know, d- diplomacy that's on the table and finding a, a common agreement or, or solution. There, there, there have also been signals from, from North Korea itself that uh, diplomacy is allegedly at the moment off the table. Uh, early this year, the South Korean president had offered um, economic aid to, to North Korea, which they flatly refused right after. And shortly after that, we've seen, again, a continuation of missile launches and uh, you know the same hostile rhetoric uh, against the South. So it's clear that at the moment, Pyongyang is unwilling to, um, to sit at the negotiation table. Um, and I think, you know, from, from their perspective, it's likely because of uh, changes in the strategic and security dynamics of the region, like, like I mentioned earlier, the, the resumption of bilateral and trilateral exercises involving South Korea, Japan, and the US, it's clearly something that Pyongyang is not um, okay with. Um, and it also knows that it, its conventional deterrence, its conventional military capabilities, you know, are no match for any of these countries, hence why they're putting most of their eggs in, 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 in a single basket. And that's why they're um, developing the, the nuclear forces. So I think, you know, the, the current behavior, it's more a sign of uh, fear and perceived insecurity and perceived uh, threats from the outside world rather than the opposite. And as such, they're developing um, asymmetric capabilities against these um, conventional military capabilities to, to match them. And of course, this will alienate them more from the outside world. It will elevate tensions in, in, the, in the region. And then if current uh, dynamics remain the same, then what we're going to see is a continuation of such tit-for-tat military responses exercises, missile launches, and the like. And so the uh, regional tensions will remain elevated for longer than expected. Thank you, Paolo, for the uh, conclusion. So I guess, it's, you know, North Korea and the Korean Peninsula will remain a key, you know, geopolitical flashpoint that we'll be, um, you know, watching very closely. And next up, um, we have uh, our Europe Associate Analyst, um, Thomas Carter. Hi, Thomas. Um, so Thomas is going to um, basically do a quick scan across the globe and see what are the events and um, uh, significant dates coming up in the next week or so um, uh, that our regional teams will be uh, watching quite closely and, and potentially do uh, reporting on. Hi, Tom. Um, thank you very much, guys. That was very interesting. So for Europe, between the 20th of October and the 1st of December, the United Kingdom, Royal Mail strikes part of a long-standing dispute over working conditions and pay. Major walkouts are expected on the 20th of October, 25th of October, 28th of November, with minor walkouts continuing until the 1st of December. In Eurasia, on the 20th of October, Moldova. Gazprom was warned it will cut off gas supplies to Moldova if it does not pay out its outstanding gas payments by the 20th of October. If Moldova is unable to make the payment, gas and wider energy prices are likely to spike. This will exasperate already growing anti-government unrest and pro-Russian agitation inside of the country, threatening energy riots over, over winter. 
Brazen Pacific, on the 24th of October in India, Diwali Festival, a public, hol public holiday starts. Important holiday in the Hindu religious calendar. Businesses are likely to be closed with high levels of domestic travel during this period. For Sub-Saharan Africa, on the 22nd of October, Guinea, the economic community for West African states, ECOWAS's deadline for the, for the military junta to present a reasonable timeline for the country's tra transition to constitutional rule. Failure to meet this deadline is likely to prompt ECOWAS to impose additional sanctions. Further sanctions are likely to drive op opposition, National Front for the Defence of the Constitution Coalition to organise further protests in concrete. It is highly likely that protests will result in violent clashes with security forces. For MENA, on the 20th of October, Lebanese MPs will meet for the third session to elect president ahead of the secession of incumbent Premier Michael Aoun's term on 31st of October. Sustained divisions between MPs increase the likelihood that lawmakers will fail to elect a president ahead of the 31st of October, after which an ensuing political vacuum will heighten policy risks, hindering further 2020 state budget talks and efforts to meet IMF requirements. Supporters of the October uh, 2019 protest movement have called for demonstrations on the day of parliamentary session, with demonstrations likely to convene outside government buildings, in particular the par parliament building in Beirut. This is expected to generate localised tra traffic disruptions and increased bystander risks amid a strengthening state's state security posture. And finally, in Latin America, on the 21st, between the 21st and 24th of October, Bolivia, Santa Cruz region demands consensus in 2023, warning of multiple protests. The department has already held two strikes to reject the postponement of the census. Unrest is likely in Santa Cruz and violence is possible. A large protest is scheduled on the 24th of October. On the 6th of November in Nicaragua, municipal elections. Nicaraguans will elect mayors and deputy mayors for 153 mun municipalities. This will slightly increase the threat of political violence. Thank you very much, Tom. That's fantastic. So uh, needless to say, it looks like it's going to be another busy week for all of, all of us. Uh, and now this concludes the um, podcast series for, for this, uh, this week. Uh, my thanks goes to uh, Hans, Ricardo and Tom. And if you have any questions or comments, podcasts or any other issues, uh, please do not hesitate to contact us via info at zipline.co.uk. And I wish you uh, all have a very good week. Until next time, goodbye.